Uh, come talk to Pastor Brett. I think there is a sign-up sheet out in the foyer. Brett's nodding his head. Uh, sign up on that, and we will, we'd love to talk to you about baptism. Maybe you are a baptized Christian, and you are thinking about joining Christ Community Church. And if that's the case, same thing. Sign up on that sheet. Talk to Brett. Talk to Kev or me, any of the elders, and uh, we'd love to talk to you more about that. So conversations are happening. Um, Pastor Bobby is right. Anyone who's been a part of our church, or really any church, you know that church is, a, is alive. You know, it's a living organism, and so there's ebbs and flows. There's, there's been a unique season of blessing and growth uh, here. You know, and I've pastored here for 10 years now, so I can't speak with the authority that Pastor Kevin would in terms of time spent, but in a decade, you know, this stuff doesn't just happen all the time. You know, God is, he pours out his blessing in different ways at different times. And so we're, we want to acknowledge that and be thankful for that. We also want to be good stewards of that. And so please come talk to us about the gospel, about baptism, about membership. Um, it's our favorite things to talk about. So with that being said, our text this morning, Exodus chapter 20, we will read verse 17 as we finish the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 17, the Holy Spirit says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask now that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder if you can identify with how I felt every Christmas when I was a kid was filled with much anticipation. I love, I love Christmas now, and I loved Christmas then. And what, so when I was a child, you know, Christmas was filled with many of the traditions that still occupy our time every December, and you have some variation, I'm sure. Christmas movies, Christmas carols, Christmas treats, Christmas parties, all the things we do. But when I was a kid, my main focus was on the presents that would be delivered Christmas morning. Now, I want to preface this by making clear, for the record, that uh, my parents never made Christmas more about presents than they did the incarnation of Jesus. If there was a focus on presents over Jesus, that is my own sin. Uh, that was not the culture of the home. Uh, they always pointed us to Christ, they always taught us the importance of the birth of the Son of God. I also want to note, and I, I can't say this for sure, but as memory serves, I think that my parents, for the most part, always like got me what I wanted for Christmas. You know, I can't remember many Christmases where there was something that I really, really wanted and that I didn't get. But every year, I would come to the end of the day, Christmas Day, thinking and feeling on the inside, is that it? 
Well, you know, there was so much anticipation, right? There was, it was so building so much and my, you know, my, these presents were going to make me feel uh, satisfied, you know, complete. And they never seemed to deliver. I didn't know how to think through it as a child, but looking back, I can see that I, you know, I thought that, that gifts, Christmas gifts, birthday gifts, whatever, would be fulfilling, and they, were, they never did fully satisfy the way that I assumed that they would. Now, regardless of what culture one lives in or what time in history people live in, our fallen hearts are always prone to wander. You know, that's, why, that's why we need to be led in the confession and pardon, because we have sin that needs to be confessed. So that's true regardless of time and place. But it's even easier in our modern Western culture where consumerism tells us that we can buy our happiness. The world sells us that bill of goods. John Mayer wrote a song called Something's Missing in which he summarizes the angst that our hearts feel uh, when, or what we experience when we're looking to other things to fulfill us. So listen to some of these lyrics from, from his song, Something's Missing. He says, I'm not alone but I wish that I was because then I would know that I was down because I couldn't find a friend around to love me like they do right now. I'm dizzy from the shopping malls. I search for joy, but I bought it all. Something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. How come everything I think that I need always comes with batteries? <laughs> I, I mean, I think we can all identify with that to some degree or another. Because our hearts are idle factories, we have a sinful propensity to believe that people or stuff like money or cars or homes or jobs or toys or degrees or anything else can satisfy us. And it is in the face of our consumeristic culture and our idolatrous hearts that this final commandment declares to us, you shall not covet. The 10th commandment addresses our heart's desires and how these desires can only be satisfied in the gospel. The 10th commandment reveals that the kingdom of Christ is filled with people who are satisfied in Jesus. But that's not where each of us starts. Our natural fallen inclination is to covet, and that's why God has to tell us not to covet. God commands us not to covet anything that is our neighbor's. The word translated covet is the Hebrew word hamad. If you were to look in the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, that's the best Hebrew lexicon out there, this is how the word hamad or covet is defined. It's defined as desire, 
in a bad sense of inordinate, ungoverned, or selfish desire. In the 10th word, we are commanded not to desire, we are commanded not to take pleasure in something or someone that is not our own. In this way, the 10th commandment is really different than the nine others because the 10th commandment does not govern external actions, but the 10th commandment governs internal attitudes. The 10th commandment regulates how we feel or how we think about that which is not rightfully ours. And the prohibition to covet ends the Decalogue, it ends the Ten Commandments because it kind of catches all of the others. Just like the first commandment covers all of the others, so if you were to break any commandment two through ten, you would also be breaking the first commandment. Okay, so in the same way that that is true, the tenth commandment kind of catches all of the others. Breaking any of the commandments or breaking all of the commandments is a violation of the first commandment. Also, breaking any or all of the commandments are encompassed in the tenth commandment. So when we think of the first commandment, if you break any one of the commandments, you are putting other gods before the one true God. So you can't break the fifth commandment and not break the first at the same time, right? You're always breaking the first commandment if you're breaking any of the commandments. Breaking any one of the commandments is practicing idolatry. And so when we think about the 10th commandment, breaking any or all of the commandments always begins, it always stems from a discontent heart. Long before you're breaking the 8th commandment of stealing, you've already coveted that item in your heart. You are breaking the 10th commandment before you are breaking the 8th. Long before you're committing adultery, you're already coveting a person that is not your spouse in your heart. Sin is in your heart long before it is in your hands. And talking about the 10th commandment can feel strange to some of us because, you know, the word covet or coveting is not used much in our vocabulary today. Much like the word adultery, it kind of feels puritanical or patriarchal or archaic or obsolete. We don't talk that way anymore. We don't think that way anymore. I mean, how many parents are actively teaching their children not to covet? It's, diff it's difficult because coveting can't truly be policed. Unless you vocalize your coveting, no one knows whether you're coveting or not. But God knows. The only one who sees the heart is God. But because coveting hides in your heart, we sometimes end up treating coveting as a, quote, respectable sin in the church. But that's not how God feels. Coveting is rebellion against God. Coveting is an affront to God's holiness. Coveting, like every other sin, is rooted in our pride. When we covet, we think that we deserve more or better than our neighbor. When we covet, we think that we ought to be God. 
When we covet, we think that we know better than God knows about what we have. And the fruit of the sin of coveting is bitterness, jealousy, idolatry. Coveting really is the fuel of our American consumeristic culture, though. We are constantly being sold the idea that we can buy happiness. It's the American dream. You buy a new iPhone. Two weeks later, there's an even newer iPhone. And your old one just like stops working. It's never satisfying. You think it's going to satisfy you. It's never satisfying. Let me ask you this question. Seriously, if you haven't been listening up to this point, okay, I forgive you. But right now, seriously, contemplate this. How much money is enough money? How much money is enough money? How much money do you think that you need to have to feel satisfied? How much money for you personally where you think, I would feel secure? I would feel set. I would feel satisfied. How much money is enough money? To the point where you would say, I don't need any more money. A reporter once asked John Rockefeller how much money it takes to be satisfied, and he said, one more dollar. Jim Carrey once said, I wish everyone in the world could have everything they've ever wanted so that they could see that it's still not enough. Chip Kelly, he's the head football coach of UCLA. He tells a story one time of traveling to Africa and visiting villages where people had nothing at all. Destitute, third world. And he said that he was struck that these people were the most content people he had ever met in his life. God commands us against coveting, of course, first and foremost, like all the other commandments, because coveting is antithetical to the character of God. God does not covet. In fact, God owns everything. But God also warns us against coveting, not only for his glory, but for our good, because coveting, especially the lust for wealth, to covet wealth, will kill your soul. 1 Timothy 1.6 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these people are choosing money over Jesus. They've walked away from the faith. In Luke 18, 25, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because a lust for wealth will kill your soul. How? Coveting kills us 
because we think we will be satisfied. And satisfaction never comes. The problem with keeping up with the Joneses is that they're always one step ahead. And the truth is that when we're confronted with the 10th commandment, as as we see God's word, as we hear God's law, the realization starts to wash over us that we're all guilty. We have all coveted. Even as we think through coveting and the problems that it brings, there, to some degree or another, there's, there's got to be a pain in each of our hearts, right? If, if you're not feeling guilt right now, if you're not feeling the sting of this truth, well, then you need to read 1 John 1, 8 that says, if you say you have no sin, you're, you're deceiving yourself. You have coveted. You are guilty. You have broken God's law. We have all looked at something or someone that isn't ours and we have wanted it because we have believed that we will be happy and that we will be more satisfied if we have it. We are all guilty of breaking God's law. We have all sinned. We have all missed the mark of God's holiness. We have all coveted. This is the bad news. The bad news is that because of our sin, we justly deserve eternal conscious punishment in hell. But there is good news. The good news is that the Lord Jesus both followed and fulfilled the 10th commandment on our behalf. Jesus followed the 10th commandment. Jesus never broke the 10th commandment. Jesus never coveted, ever. Jesus obeyed the 10th commandment. Parentheses, Jesus obeyed every one of God's laws, including the 10th commandment. Thus, this proves that Jesus is the fulfillment of the 10th commandment. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. John 1.14 tells us, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And in his incarnation and in his humiliation, Jesus Christ not only abstained from coveting, but Jesus also gave up that which was rightfully his so that we might inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3, we read it in our call to worship. Jesus not only didn't lust after that which was not his, Jesus rightfully gave up, or Jesus gave up that which was rightfully his for us. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he prayed to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Luke 22.42. And Jesus experienced the ultimate loss when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. Because on the cross, God the Father poured out that just wrath. Jesus paid for all of the coveting that his people did. 
The one who never coveted had to pay the penalty for all of our coveting. He became sin. The one who did not know sin became sin. When Jesus was on the cross, God looked at Jesus, and if you're a Christian, God saw your coveting heart. That's what he saw when he looked at Jesus. And he couldn't leave it. He had to pour out his wrath on it. Because the wages of sin is death. Because the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Jesus experienced the guilt and the shame and the wrath for all of our coveting, for all of the coveting of everyone who believes in him. And even though Jesus experienced death to fulfill the curse of the garden, death could not keep Jesus. Death shut him in. But guess what? Revelation tells us that Jesus had the key. And Jesus walked right out. You know why death couldn't hold Jesus down? Do you know why death holds the rest of us down and it couldn't hold Jesus down? Because he never sinned. That's the power death has over us. Our sin. We're guilty. We deserve to die. We don't have a case to make. We can't say, no, I, death, you can't come for me. I'm clean. Jesus experienced death. He willingly went in, but he didn't stay. Death couldn't hold on to him because Jesus never sinned. Death had no authority over Jesus because Jesus never sinned. Because Jesus is righteous. And so on the third day, the Lord Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb, resurrected from the dead. Listen to me. This is the reason why this is good news. Because your heart will never, ever be satisfied with anyone or anything other than Jesus. You think it will. Just like I do. You think it will. Well, pastor, but you know, if I, if I really did have this amount of money, it would be okay. I'd be set. If I really did have this address or this car, you think you do. You think that you will be okay, that you will be satisfied, but you won't. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that we were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The problem is that because of your sin, you glorify everything but God and you seek enjoyment in everything but God. You see the juxtaposition there. What's the chief end of man? What's the reason you were created? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because of your sin, you glorify everything but God and you seek enjoyment in everything but God. Jesus is the only one who can give you true and final satisfaction because Jesus is the only way back to the reason you were created. To glorify and enjoy God. 
And what you must do is repent of your sin and believe the gospel. To repent means to confess your sin and to turn from your sin and toward Christ. It means to stop looking to anyone or anything other than Christ to satisfy your soul. And to believe means to place your faith in Jesus alone. Faith is comprised of knowledge, assent, and trust. That means to have faith in Jesus means to, number one, know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And if you have been listening to the sermon, then you have all the info you need about Jesus. We aren't missing anything. Everything you need to know about who he is and what he did, we have explained all throughout the service and even in the sermon. But that knowledge is not enough. There are a lot of people who don't have faith in Jesus, but know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You must also assent to the facts about Jesus. That means you must actually believe they're true. You can't just say, I know Christians believe uh, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. You go through all the creed. I know Christians believe that. Now, I don't believe it, but I know that's what they believe. That person's not a Christian, right? Knowledge is not enough. You have to believe that's true. Right? You have to assent to the validity of these facts about Jesus. But there are even people who have knowledge and who have assent and who still are not Christians because they're not trusting in Jesus alone. You must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. And that means if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and God were to ask you why he should forgive your sins and why he should grant you eternal life, that your only answer must be, all I have is Jesus. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. My trust is in Jesus. That's it. That's all you've got to offer. In our class this morning, Mike read from uh, the Psalms where, where the, the word picture is given as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for God. That's how you come. That's what trust means. Like, like a deer comes to a stream with nothing else to offer, the only thing the deer has to offer the stream is if I don't drink of you, I will die. That's what trust is. That's all you have to offer Jesus. Give me Christ or else I die. That's what trust means. The gospel, even now, is calling out to you. Repent and believe. And then when, when you do, when God gives you the gift of faith, it is at that point that you are satisfied in Jesus. The kingdom of Christ is filled with people who are satisfied in Jesus. This is true for a couple of reasons that we see in Scripture. First, the kingdom of Christ is filled with people who are satisfied in Jesus because God is sovereign. The Bible tells us that God is sovereign. Christians 
should be the most content people in the world. Emphasis on should. Christians should be the most content people in the world because we understand that God is meticulously sovereign over every atom, over every second of history. God is the author of every single thing that has ever happened in the history of creation. There's nothing that's ever surprised him. There's nothing that's ever snuck by him. He has actively written this story. You know, we say here often, you know, nothing happens by accident. Nothing's a coincidence. That's what we mean. The clothes you're wearing right now, the way you're sitting, the way I'm standing, like God's writing this story. He's not hands off. He is meticulously sovereign. We sing in the hymn, In Christ Alone, from life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. We don't think that applies only to Christians. Jesus commands the destiny of every single person who's ever lived, whether they have believed or not, from their very first cry until their final breath. Jesus commands our destiny. Because that's true, that means we must be content wherever we are. We must be content wherever we are because God is sovereign and because in Christ, God loves us more than we can even know. That means that wherever you are in your life right now, with your marriage, with your family, with your church, with your job, with your school, with your retirement, with your siblings, with your parents, with your grandparents, with your neighbors, with your recreation. Wherever you are in life right now, God has you there for a reason. God has you where you are right now for his glory and for your good. It's not just for your present good either. It's it's also for your future good. Dr. Russell Moore has said that that your life now, that your work now, that your calling and vocation now is but an internship for your royal vocation in the eschaton. God is preparing you in this life for eternity. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, this life is but an introduction to the story of eternity where each chapter is better than the last. We must be content, church, because God is sovereign. But secondly, we must be content because Jesus is enough. The gospel reveals to us that in this life, Jesus is all we truly have. But that's okay because Jesus is all we truly need. There's nothing else in this life that's indispensable. Jesus commands us that we must love him so much that we must be so loyal to him that our love for our own family and our loyalty to our own family looks like hate 
compared to the love and the loyalty that we have for Jesus. Matthew 10, 37 through 39 says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's true, not only because Christ is owed our ultimate allegiance, though that is true. Christ is owed our ultimate allegiance. But it's also true because Jesus is the only one who will never leave us or forsake us. If we seek our deepest satisfaction in other people, we will be disappointed. I don't have to convince you of that. Like me, you've maybe lost a parent or lost a spouse or lost a child or you lost all your savings or you lost your house or your job or anything else. You can't lose Jesus. By his spirit and by his word and by his sacraments, Jesus promised he is with us always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. It is only in Christ, it is only when we have Jesus that we can lose everything else. And like Job, we can still say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1.21. And see, church, the problem, our problem is not that we aren't spiritually content enough. That's not our problem. Our problem is that we're too spiritually content. We live for money. We live for homes. We live for cars and jobs. And that's all small potatoes. Church, in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We become so infatuated with these tools that God has given us to use for his glory. That's all money is. Money is nothing but a tool to be used for the glory of God. We become so infatuated with these tools that we miss the glorious one who gave us the tools and the gifts. C.S. Lewis says just about everything better than I do. And this is true here as well. So I'm just going to read from The Weight of Glory, where Lewis paints a perfect word picture. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. 
The gospel reveals to us that our desires are good, like having desires is, is not bad, like having desire is good, but those desires are only met in the Lord Jesus Christ. So life is not about abandoning desire like Buddhism teaches, because God gave us desires. Desires are good. But here's the kicker. God created us in such a way that we could only be satisfied in Jesus. You know, it's like trying to drive a toaster to work instead of your car. It's not going to work. It's not made to do that. It wasn't created for that purpose. You were not created to be satisfied with money. You were not created to be satisfied with whatever that we covet. You were created only to be satisfied in Jesus. And so nothing else is going to satisfy you. Because that's true, then there are things we ought to covet. There are, there are things that are good to covet. Ed Clowney said we ought to covet Christ's work among the nations. We ought to covet Jesus' second coming to make all things new. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That petition of the Lord's Prayer was inaugurated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it will be consummated when Jesus returns to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. And the only one who can get us there is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our reward. Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is the greatest reward. Jesus is the greatest treasure. Jesus is the only one in whom your soul can find satisfaction. Like that's, that's a heavy burden to bear, right, for Jesus. I mean, that's putting all your stock in one person. But let me tell you, church, it's true, and by faith you can have Jesus. It's free. It's a gift. It will cost you everything. That's another juxtaposition, isn't it? It's free. There's nothing, not only is there nothing you have to do, there's quite literally nothing you can do. But it comes at the expense of everything else is worthless. If you want Jesus... If you want to feel the satisfaction you always have longed for and you've never experienced it, but you've tasted it and you want that full satisfaction, you can have it. But be warned, when you take him, it's him or, or nothing. Everything else becomes nothing and Jesus becomes everything. That's the gospel. Jesus is better. Lord, make our hearts believe. So as we conclude this little series on the Ten Commandments, we're, 
reminded that these words that were given to Israel millennia ago, they, they still speak to the church here in 2023. The law reveals God's glory and the law reveals our sin. In Romans 7, 7, Paul said, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. There's an element in which the law indeed does reveal our sin. That is one of the purposes of the law. But it also points us to Jesus. Because Jesus kept all the commandments. Not only that, but Jesus fulfills all the commandments. And in Jesus, we meet God's righteous demands. These Ten Commandments shape our lives, they shape our church, and we must never forget them, we must rehearse them, we must remember them, but we must always remember them in the context of the gospel of Jesus. Law without gospel is death. Law and gospel, this is the way. The kingdom of Christ is filled with people who are satisfied in Jesus. So we started the sermon with, uh, with lyrics from John Mayer's song, Something's Missing. John Mayer, another rich guy, right? More money than he'll ever know what to do with. He says that he has everything that he can ever want, and he has everything that he could ever need, and yet something's missing. I know what John Mayer's missing. It's the same thing that you need. It's the same thing that I need. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the only way we can do that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So we started with song lyrics and we're going to end this morning with some song lyrics. This time, these are from a song by Andrew Peterson called All You'll Ever Need. So listen to Andrew Peterson's answer to John Mayer's question of why his stuff won't satisfy him. And Andrew Peterson tells him the only thing that can satisfy him. He says, the blood of Jesus, it is like the widow's oil. It's enough to pay the price to set you free. It can fill up every jar and every heart that ever beat. And when it's all you have, it's all you'll ever need. The blood of Jesus, it is like the leper's river, running humble with the power you cannot see. Seven times go under, let the water wash you clean. Only go down to the Jordan and believe. And I need it. I need it. The closer that I grow, the more I come to know how much I need it. The blood of Jesus, it is like Elijah's fire falling on the altar of your faith. All the wisdom of the world could never conjure up a spark, but no power of hell could ever quench this flame. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would keep your promise that your word that has gone out will not return void. Father, we understand that the gospel is not passive and it is not neutral, that it is either softening or hardening hearts as it is preached. And so, Father, we would ask you in your mercy that you would soften all of the hearts that don't believe but Lord, we know that you are sovereign and that you are good and that your will will be done. We ask now as we come 
to your Eucharist, that you would create thankfulness in our hearts. Lord, that we would be satisfied in Jesus alone. Lord, that we would be satisfied in Jesus alone. We ask in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.